resuming these uh, readings from Stillness Flowing, the life and teachings of Ajahn Chah. I thought uh, <coughs> that we could, um, uh, this period of the retreat, uh, read the chapter called Polishing the Shell, and this is about monastic training. Lumpur Cha chose to live his life as a Buddhist monk. He received permission from his parents to enter a monastery at the age of nine, and apart from a brief period in his teens, he lived in monastic communities until his death at the age of 74. The Sangha was his family, and as a teacher, its welfare was his main preoccupation. While he gave considerable importance to propagating the Dhamma in society at large, he did so only to the extent that it did not compromise his training of the monks and nuns in his monastery. Lumpur considered that the longevity and good health of Buddhism in a society was ultimately decided by the quality of the monastic order. He spent much of his life providing a training for monastics that was intended to be true to the ancient principles, but that would, at the same time, also enable the Sangha to thrive in a Thailand that was rapidly changing. Perhaps most crucially, he sought to create a Sangha that was not overly tied to him as an individual, but would be able to thrive in his eventual absence. When Lumpur established Wat Papong in 1954, there were few precedents for him to draw upon. No clear-cut forest monastery template passed down by his teachers to conform to. Scarcely a decade had passed since Lumpur Man himself, the father of the tradition, had first spent two consecutive rains retreats in the same monastery. Nevertheless, it seems evident that Lumpur had been preparing for this new development in his life for some time, closely observing the ways that things were done in every monastery he practiced in during his Tudong years. He began with great confidence, establishing a monastery based broadly upon Lumpuman's monastery at Nongpur, but also introducing certain adaptations inspired by practices he had seen elsewhere, and others from his own ideas. From the beginning, he showed a willingness to learn from experience and discard what did not work. So we're within that opening piece, I think that there's a few very significant points there. I think even though Lumpur Cha is very well known as a, as a teacher for the many folk, I think it's important, and I think Ajahn Jayasara makes the same point in, in other places, that uh, his focus was on the monastic order and monastic training. So he didn't uh, accept many invitations to go and teach outside the monastery, not to make you lay people feel bad. But <laughs> that is a very, uh, uh, this, that particular comment that Ajahn Jayasaro makes here, that uh, Lumpur considered that the longevity and good health of Buddhism in a society was ultimately decided by the quality of the monastic order. So that that... Um, <clears throat> is where he really put his attention. And uh, so that, that's a significant uh, point that in, in a way informs a lot of the, uh, the, the teachings and then the, 
the 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 uh, the way he spent his time and the emphasis that he chose to give, even though he was available to to uh, and was teaching uh, people for many many hours a day, and the majority of those were visiting lay people. His residence was in the monastery and in the various different branch monasteries that he established, and so the uh, the center of his attention was the well-being of the monastic order. Um, also significantly, um, Ajahn Jayasara kind of packed a lot into these opening three paragraphs. Um, as he says here, perhaps most crucially, he sought to create a Sangha that was not overly tied to him as an individual, but would still be able to thrive in his eventual absence. So that was an extremely visionary uh, uh, and thoughtful, very, very wise um, emphasis to make because it's very easy because he was quite a charming person he was very magnetic uh, people really found it very easy to, to love him and to respect him and he could have been one uh, to just please people with his uh, his clever and inspiring and amusing and wise words and turn his teaching into a personality cult to make it sort of like, look at me, I'm wonderful, aren't I, you know, the great, fantastic teacher that's rescuing Thailand from darkness. And uh, he, you know, he could have done that. Uh, he had the, the, the power and the sort of charm, charisma to have done that kind of thing. But he very deliberately didn't. And it was one of the, uh, I didn't spend that much time with him face to face, only about a total of three weeks probably in the, the two years I was in Thailand in that uh, period. Um, but it was <clears throat> there was uh, something about the way that he operated that you could see how he did that. That he, even though he was a very magnetic personality, so something about the way that he functioned that kept saying, "Don't look at me, look at yourself," and that if you tried to flatter him, or you know, people you saw, you laugh, you, people who would laugh particularly loud at his jokes, or sort of. Um, uh, act in ways that would, in, in ordinary, um, sort of the ordinary social manner of things, people would be sort of pleased by or, or, or would sort of lean towards being, uh, um, say, gratified by that uh, approval, people kind of smiling or their faces all lit up or kind of laughing at his jokes. Sometimes he would just go completely flat and just sort of not receive that or not, not kind of buy into it, not be feeding on that in, in any way uh, at all. So there was this extraordinary, um, say, uh, uh, ability that he had. And, and uh, even though, I, as I said, I was only with him myself for a, a very short period of time, I feel that was something that, and, uh, that it, it's, uh, in the way that it's described here, was something he was quite consciously, say, um, uh, cultivating throughout his teaching career was this uh, don't don't just look at me look at yourself he didn't need to be loved he didn't need to be praised or he didn't need other people's affection or approval he didn't have to feed on that he was um, not asking for that or needing that and, and he also saw that what does what benefit does that really bring to people what uh, what uh, okay there's an inspiration but how does that help people really and so that this um, I, uh, the sense of not being f tied to him as a person, but really uh, focusing on the, the life of the monastery, the monastic training, the monastic community, and how things could carry on in a way that didn't center around him as an individual. That was really a stroke of genius and an extraordinarily visionary um, 
uh, to have had that in mind or to see that from from very very early on, and uh, and all praise to him. And it's also one of the reasons why, when uh, he was paralyzed uh, and could no longer speak and could no longer teach in um, 1983-84, that I think there was something like 70 or 80 branch monasteries at that time, and there's now 300 and uh, <clears throat> 340 something. So that there's now, um, uh, you know, four times as many monasteries uh, that have come in, you know, that uh, have uh, have risen up um, than there were when he was actually actively teaching. So his it was very effective in this approach of of not depending on him as an individual, because often, what often happens with uh, other uh, famous teachers is that they they do gather a lot of attention and praise and are very powerful and effective teachers but they they haven't set things up in such a, a thoughtful way so that when the teacher goes and their life comes to an end or they can no longer teach then the, um, their disciples will sort of go their own separate ways or the 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 system of training doesn't carry on in such a uh, a coordinated or, or um, supportive way so it really is quite a uh, an amazing thing that the Lumpur Chah saw that uh, from uh, early on and developed this way of uh, say being a central figure and and say leading things and and guiding things, but with this uh, mysterious sort of deflection mechanism <laughs> that wouldn't let people attach to him or project onto him or or, or depend on him as a as a uh, individual. And um, well, as a as an aside, when um, uh, when Lumpur Cha was was a first teaching here in, in the West, or that when he um, uh, was, uh, say, uh, over here in 1977 and then in 79, and the, um, uh, <clears throat> there were people at the, in the English Sangha Trust were concerned about how they would um, fund things, or they, if they were going to move out of London and, and uh, move down to, to Sussex, you know, how, how would things work out? And uh, you know, Lumpur Char just said, you know, you know don't, don't worry about it. You know, there's there's no need for that. And as um, uh, George Sharp has, has recounted a, a few times, also Lumpur Sumato, when when uh, when they would talk about those kind of things with him, and uh, Lumpur said, don't don't worry about it. And when and he was around, people would just start making these you know, large donations or step forward and say, how can I help? And and suddenly all this this money would begin appearing, and then uh, they would. Uh, George said, "You know, you make this comment. Like, how, you know, uh, how do you, uh, how, how does it work like this? You know, because you know, there doesn't seem to be anything so different. Um, but uh, for some reason, people just keep uh, you know, showing up and offering all this support." And Ajahnjah said, "I use my magnet. <laughs> I switch on my magnet, so that uh, he, uh, not to be kind of deluding people or, or tricking people into making donations, but just." By, by um, uh, you know, he could kind of turn on the charm, or he could he could make himself be you know, appealing, or could help uh, inspire people if he chose to. But he could also switch off his magnet. He could be very um, uh, uh, challenging or, or, or non-charming if if, uh, if he needed to. So uh, that um, uh, I feel it's a it's a, a small aspect of his role as a teacher. But also, I feel in terms of uh, of uh, 
of how a monastery flourishes, even though leadership is, is obviously very, very useful, uh, it's, it's helpful for all of us in terms of the monastic community to be, uh, to be seeing that it's, it's not the teacher who really teaches, but it's the monastic environment that helps us to teach ourselves. That's the essential principle. So even though you've got somebody sitting in the middle seat and doing the talking, it's, it's really the, the monastery environment that helps you to teach yourself. That's the, uh, and the, the role of the, the, the person in the middle is to help sustain that environment so that uh, everyone who's living in the place or visiting the place can, uh, they're most uh, fully able to, to teach themselves. Also his comment about uh, Lumpu Man here, so, uh, uh, so Lumpu Man was very much the, the founder uh, or the reviver of the forest tradition within Thailand, but as he says here, he, he made a practice of never spending the rains retreat in the same place two years in a row, so he really was a, a wandering monk, so he, he didn't stay in the same place, he kept moving from one place to another, to another, to another, to another, and it wasn't until the last five years of his life that he just couldn't keep walking, couldn't keep traveling uh, in the same way. And so the last five years of his life was spent at this uh, little monastery Nong Pur near Sakonnakorn. And that was the, the, the first time he'd been in, in a single place for more than two years in a row, or even for, for two years in a row, so that Ajahn Chah didn't ha really have a, a model of a, of a well-established ongoing monastery from that Lumpuman tradition, they just, they just didn't exist. And so that uh, he really had to conjure his own place into being through um, uh, his own experiences of meeting Lumpuman and then um, using his own uh, imagination, his experience, his own uh, discretion. So the next section is called Chaff from the Grain. One of the distinctive features of the Wat Bapong training was the unusually long time, in some periods almost two years, that aspirants lived in the monastery first as postulants and then as novices before taking full ordination. Uh, this is referring to the male um, community in particular. This was a radically different approach to that found in the village and city monasteries. Screening applicants for admission into the Sangha and requiring them to spend a probationary period as postulants may seem to be a matter of common sense, but it was virtually unknown at that time. In most monasteries, applicants could expect to be wearing a monk's robes within days of walking through the gate, custom that contributed significantly to low standards throughout the monastic order. A probationary period served to make ordination seem more valuable. Lumpur expressed his view on the matter in a characteristically succinct phrase. Easy to ordain, easy to disrobe. Difficult to ordain, difficult to disrobe. At Wat Bapong, those unsuited for monastic life usually left well before the ceremony of ordination. New people were tested from the first day. A freshly arrived applicant for ordination at Wabapong would spend the first few days in a state of some confusion, receiving little attention and sleeping at night on a rush mat at the back of the Dhamma Hall. Ajahn Tieng recalled, Lumpur would leave the newly arrived people alone. He didn't speak to them apart from asking them how they were now and then. Whether they did things right or wrong, he said nothing. 
he just leave them for about a week or five days or three days, depending on the circumstance, and then he would speak. I thought it was an excellent method to, to get an idea of the person's intelligence. Was he aware of what was going on around him? Was he observant? Or was he foolish, unobservant or impulsive? Once Lung Po had grasped his weak points, his basic personality, then he would start to teach him and train him. Achan Jandi, one of those who passed through this process with distinction, saw others leave after a few days. Lung Po was unconcerned. His attitude was, whoever wants to come, let them come. Whoever wants to leave, let them leave. It didn't affect him. I came as a layperson, and I was here for about ten days before anybody said anything to me. The monks and novices didn't speak to me or teach me anything, or ask me to help with anything at all. I thought, why am I being left to my own devices like this? I've just been abandoned. Sometimes I started to feel miserable and considered going home. It seemed, from the way that everybody was behaving, that nobody was interested in me. Realizing that the onus was upon him to make the effort to watch those around him closely and copy them in whatever he could, Ajahn Jandi's willingness to learn was noticed and his life in the monastery soon began to change for the better. After some days, the applicant would be told, by the way, Ajahn Jandi is now one of the most highly respected and distinguished of Lumpur Chah's disciples and so and uh, is uh, someone that is uh, looked to as a, a very wise and reliable uh, member of the community. So it's a good thing he was patient and observant. After some days, the applicant would be told that he could now shave his head, signifying an initial commitment to the abandonment, abandonment of vanity and the practice of renunciation. He would then formally request the eight precepts and begin wearing the white lower robe and the angsa of the postulant. It's the kind of upper robe. From this point, his training would begin. He would join in most of the Sangha's communal activities, assist the monks, and start to learn the daily chants. So this is, again, Ajahn Jandi speaking. I wanted to ordain quickly, but Lumpur explained about the training of new people, and it made sense to me. He was quite stern with my group. He said he wasn't going to let us ordain easily. He would train us like soldiers. We'd come to be soldiers of the Buddha, and we needed some basic training, like army boot camp. It might take many months or even a year if we weren't any good. For those who badly wanted to ordain, it took the wind out of their sails. In those days, he aimed at quality above all. He wasn't bothered by the reactions of the people who came. He wanted to test their faith. The smarter people ordained more quickly because they were fluent, able to do everything in a neat, correct way. Others were there for a year or two, and they still weren't ready. If they could endure, they stayed. If they couldn't, they left. He didn't ever try to persuade anyone to stay. Some people would arrive saying they were tired of the world, they'd had their fill of it, but then they came up against the monastic regulations, and a single day was enough. By the next morning, they changed their minds and left. Although it was true that they came with faith, they lacked wisdom. Some didn't even pay respects before they left, they just ran away. This has happened here in the past as well. It's not just confined to uh, Thailand. All that's left is the smell of burning rubber from the, <laughs> the, uh, the trainers 
as the <laughs> the uh, from the soles of the training shoes as they race out of the gate. Some people stayed a bit longer, shaved their heads, and then left. I know so many people who were unable to endure it. Anyone who expressed desire or showed impatience in Lumpur's presence could expect to pay a price. If a new member of the community wanted to ordain as soon as possible, the worst thing that he could do would be to request a date from Lumpur. Or, almost unthinkable except perhaps for some of the Westerners, to pester him. To kind of keep asking over and over and over again. The question, Lumpur, when will I be ordained? would either be completely ignored or, dismi or dismissed with a don't bother or it's not really necessary, just carry on as you are. Only when Lumpur saw that the eager aspirant was at peace with whatever his teacher decided did he arrange for an ordination. One of the most valuable phrases a new member of the community could learn at Wat Bapong was it's up to you Lumpur. In Thai that's la te Lumpur. Go la te Lumpur. It meant that he trusted Lumpur's judgment and could be patient for however long it took. So any questions, reflections on that before we continue? There's a, a whole chapter on the nuns training and the nuns community later on in the book. So this is, does focus upon mostly on the, the male members of the community, but um, the, uh, one of the very first people that came and stayed with uh, Lumpur was his mother. She took the eight precepts and became the, one of the very first uh, mechis there, so that, uh, that uh, the nuns' training and the nuns' communities are a later chapter in the book. So the next section is called Going Forth. Novice ordination has traditionally been the de facto option for males below the age of 20 with men of 20 years or above taking full monk ordination without becoming novices first. Lungpur was unusual in that, for a number of years, he required men of all ages to spend a period of months as, no as novices before becoming monks. It gave aspirants for monkhood the chance to develop a feel for Sangha life with many of the trappings of life as a monk, but without the immediate pressure of having to conform to a large, complex body of training rules. Eventually, he relaxed this practice somewhat, but retained it for Westerners and elderly men who benefited from this gentle introduction to Sangha life. Uh, incidentally, for those who are not aware, that the, the training period is even longer here in the West than it was in, in Thailand. So for um, both on the men's side and the women's side, it's about two and a half years, maybe uh, but certainly not less than two years, and sometimes about three years from when you come in the gate to when you finally... Uh, either become a bhikkhu or a silatara. Is that about right, Ajahn? About three years? Mm -hmm. Here, for silatara, about from coming through the gate. Yeah, well, and also that uh, that um, uh, one of the, one of the places that Lumpur Cha got that from was from uh, Lumpur Man that he would keep people in uh, uh, in white. And there was uh, I know there's uh, I've heard of uh, at least one person that was a, a disciple of Lumpur Man that 
he was an uh, anagarika for six or seven years before he would uh, give him permission to to take on the uh, the bhikkhu life. So that uh, uh, if they felt someone wasn't ready, then you just you just stay in the in the cooker for a bit longer, not yet baked. The novice ordination ceremony, pabaja, literally going forth, is short. The aspirant receives robes from the teacher, makes his formal request to go forth, receives the ten precepts from the teacher, and recites the list of the five basic meditation topics. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. On one such going forth ceremony, Lumpur gave the following instructions. This is Lumpur Chah speaking. The only reason that I make it so difficult for all of you to enter the Sangha here is that I want things to be done well. Taking the time is the proof of your commitment. Some people want to become monks, but then when they find out that it takes a long time, they change their minds. Some bear with it. Some leave and seek to become monks elsewhere. I have no objections to that, but what I have always insisted upon is that becoming a monk is not taken lightly. As postulants, you've trained and prepared yourselves to become a monk. You've lived with the monks, learned how to offer things to them correctly, learned about the monk's life, becoming acquainted with it. You've practiced sewing and dyeing cloth, looking after robes and bowls. You've seen how the monks practice with regard to robes, arms round, dwelling place, medicines. Now, you must be willing to conduct yourselves in the same way. This is the foundation. Now that you've learned the basics, you can become a novice. I'll give you a bowl, and tomorrow morning you'll put on your robes neatly and walk for alms in the village. Tomorrow, the villagers will put fresh cooked rice in your bowl. They'll pay their respects to you. And why will these old people with grey hair hold up their hands in respect to you? Because of the power of the ochre robe. The ochre robe belongs to the Buddha. It has an incomparable power. If you use it in the wrong way, you will degrade yourself. There are a great number of Dhamma teachings to learn, but today, on the day of novice ordination, there are just a few. Following the tradition handed down from the great teachers of old, today we study the five meditation objects. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth and skin. When you first hear the list, it may sound a bit comical, but if you contemplate these five things well, it will become really profound. We're born with these things, but we don't know them. It's necessary to learn these five fundamental meditation objects as the entrance to the path that leads directly to Nibbana. Herein lies right view. We are taught to learn these five basic meditation objects and then reflect on them. Repeat after me in the scriptural language. Kesa loma naka danta tacho. Tacho danta naka loma kesa. Some people say that everyone has these things. They know what they are already. Why study them? But they don't really know what they are. They don't know the true nature of head hair, of body hair, of nails, of teeth, or of skin. Hair of the head is, in fact, repulsive. Where does it come from? It feeds on pus. The others are the same. These things are not glowing with health, you know. They're not delightful. But we don't really see that. It's the flawed parts that people beautify, the unattractive parts. It's because of their great dirtiness that people pretty them up. Is there really anything beautiful about head hair? No, there isn't. Is it clean? 
There's nothing clean about it. If you heaped up a pile of hair and left it by the side of the road, would anyone pick it up? Take off your skin, put it by the side of the road, and then tomorrow on arms round, see if anyone has gone off with it yet. We don't see these things in their true light. Now that you're novices, pay attention to them. Head hair is not beautiful. Body hair is not beautiful. Nails are not beautiful. Teeth are not beautiful. Skin is not beautiful. But people cover themselves with powders and creams and so on <clears throat> to make them seem beautiful. And so we're deluded and don't see the truth of things. It's like the fish that swallows the hook. Have you seen that? Actually, the fish doesn't intend to eat the hook. It's the bait that it swallows. If it saw the hook, the fish wouldn't eat the bait. It swallows the bait because it doesn't know what it's doing. It's the same for all of us. If you were to see these things in their true light, you wouldn't want them. Why would you choose to burden yourself with things like that? But it's like the fish. Once the hook is in its mouth, however much the fish wants to get it out, it can't. It's snagged. If you contemplate these five parts of the body over and over again and see them clearly, your mind will be at ease. Keep contemplating. Don't be heedless. Study these meditation objects and fear them like hooks. If you don't feel any fear towards them, it's because you don't know them. Once you're ordained, then be obedient. Follow the teacher's advice and instruction. Be respectful. Put yourself in awe of the Buddha and the training rules that he laid down. You must try your utmost to bring up a sense of fear and awe, a wise fear of wrongdoing and bad karma, a fear of breaking the Buddha's laws. If you constantly reflect in this way, you will live peacefully, happy and heedful. Now I will present you with your robe, this ochre robe, uh, this ochre dyed robe that is the victory banner of the Arahants. Go outside and put on the lower and upper robes. Put them on beautifully, evenly, all the way round. Now, those of us who are robe wearers will know that um, putting the robe on neatly is uh, easy to talk about, but not easy to do. And um, particularly the skill of, of rolling the robe up and having it over your shoulder, because you haven't got any kind of clips or buttons or zips or hooks and such like to hold it all in place. Um, it's uh, quite an, an art to learn to learn that. So uh, reading Lumpur Cha's words here saying, you will put on your robes neatly and walk for arms in the village. That uh, It was reminding me that my, the first morning I went uh, on arms round. Um, so the, my uh, novice ordination, the Pabaja, was at Wapapong. And um, so I hadn't spent that much time there. I, I was mostly at Wapananacha, which is about seven uh, kilometers away, about five miles away from the main monastery. So we went over to, uh, to Wat Bapong and then had the, the Pabaja, the novice ordination, and then stayed overnight there, and then the next morning went out on arms round. So it was the rainy season, and um, uh, you, so you have an umbrella with you. So you, not only do you have to have your robe that you're keeping on neatly, but you've got to have your arms bowl over your shoulder and then an umbrella that you have to negotiate with. And um, it was probably the worst experience of my life. Um, because you want to do everything right, but I was um, sort of last in line, and it's pouring with rain, and so you're trying to keep your umbrella up, and you're trying to do everything right, and your robe is falling off, and then 
that people are, are you got to lean down and open up your bowl. People put food in your bowl, and you got to open the lid of your bowl and keep the umbrella in place and not bash yourself and not bash the layperson. And so, uh, and then the robe is falling off and and it's bucketing down with rain. So I, uh, I was the last one in the line. Lumpur Chao would always uh, give the foreigners the precepts after everybody else. So I was the last in the line. I got further and further behind the whole line of monks uh, and as, as we were going along. And uh, further and further behind. And I, and I, uh, got, I got lost in the village. I didn't, I didn't know that where I didn't know the village where where we where we were walking. Uh, I was not familiar with me, so I was soaking wet. Uh, I was lost. Um, my robes were falling off. It was pouring with rain, and it was uh, the most miserable uh, ex- experience. So this sort of carrying the the victory banner, of, wearing the victory banner of the arahants, was not my experience on on day one. And um, I, and of course I couldn't speak any Thai, so I'm trying to ask people which is the way back to Wat Bapong, you know, and find this that the the uh, the natural wisdom of uh, the locals realize here's a wet foreigner um, with a, with a miserable look on his face. He's probably trying to get back to to Wat Bapong, so um, <laughs> if we can point the uh, point the direction. I think they were a total idiot. He doesn't even know the way to his own monastery. But I didn't. By that point, I didn't really mind. And then, of course, by the time I, I got back to Wat Bapong, then there were already uh, everybody of uh, the, the monks and novices, and were all sitting in the eating hall, and uh, they'd already kind of started halfway through the, the meal by the time I got there. So uh, I had to sort of scoot in at the back and find a place to sit. So uh, it was one of those experiences where the the only consoling thing is it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> And it was true, that was about as bad as it ever got. So day one was, was, was completely and utterly miserable. So uh, fortunately I didn't get, pack it in and give up at that point, but it was, it was uh, uh, extraordinarily horrible. So, if that's any comfort to anybody. But, uh, so any questions, thoughts, reflections as we go along? So the next uh, section is called Parts of a Whole. Uh, uh, and then the subtitle is the Wat Bapong Sangha. The community at Wat Bapong consisted of monks, novices, postulants and mechis, white-robed nuns. The majority of the novices were teenage boys, ineligible from taking the full monk's ordination until the age of 20. As for the monks, they could be divided into three groups, monks of regular standing, visiting monks, and temporary monks. The nuns lived separately from the male monastics, and their training is dealt with in chapter number nine. So Later on, we'll get to that, hopefully. The main body of the Sangha consisted of the first group, those monks who had arrived as laymen and had passed through the designated period of preparation before ordaining. This group might be further divided into new monks, Navakas, those having been in the Sangha for less than five years, middle, Majima monks, those of between five and ten years, and senior, Terra monks, those who had been in the Sangha for more than ten years. The second, much smaller group, consisted of monks ordained in other monasteries and classified as visiting Akanduka monks. At any one time, this group would include both short-term visitors 
and monks wishing to join the Wapwapong Sangha who were undergoing a period of probation and adaptation. The third group, usually only present during the rains retreat, consisted of monks who had taken temporary ordination. Lumpur made it clear that, in his view, the only legitimate reason for entering the Sangha in a forest monastery was to single-mindedly follow the path to enlightenment. He would caution the monks, we're not here to become anything at all. In other words, monastic life wasn't about gaining any kind of reward, status or identity. That would simply perpetuate the suffering of the lay life in a new form. All craving, even for Nibbana itself, was to be rooted out. Forbearance, or patient endurance, forbearance was singled out as a cardinal virtue. He said that people found ways to repress or conceal their faults in the world, whereas Dhamma practice opened the inner world up wide and exposed all faults. It was hard to endure. This is Lumpur speaking. Remember, the practice is to look at yourself. Don't look outside, look within. Why? Because we're practicing for enlightenment. Young men and old, we have renounced worldly work to come here to practice. The practice should result in the paths and fruits. This is the um, results of uh, liberation. If it doesn't, then as far as I'm concerned, it's a waste of time. Try to produce these results. Realize the paths and fruits. If it's not a big path, then a small one. Not a big fruit, then a small one. Do it and don't regress. Let the practice keep inching forward. Don't be satisfied with what you've already achieved. Lumpur said that if any monk practiced diligently, the first level of enlightenment, stream entry, was attainable within five years. And in the footnote to that it says, the Buddha's statement in the Satipatthana Sutta, should any person maintain the four foundations of mindfulness in this manner for seven years, seven months or seven days, then by him one of two fruitions is proper to be expected. Arahantship here and now, or if some form of clinging is yet present, the state of non-returning. So he would urge newly ordained monks to clearly understand that they were embarking on a life that ran counter to the old worldly habits. Again, Lumpur is speaking. Everyone likes to follow their desires, but once you've entered the Sangha here at Wapapong, you can't do that anymore. You've come here to train. If you become a monk and think you're going to eat well, sleep well and lead a comfortable life, then you've got the wrong idea. You're in the wrong place. If that's what you want, you should remain a layperson and support yourself. It would be easy for the faint-hearted. Sorry, it would not be easy. <laughs> it would not be easy for the faint-hearted. Only those who are fully committed would survive. Again, Lumpur is speaking. Those with faith can stand it. However demanding it is, they endure. Whatever the difficulties and tribulations, they persist. Patient endurance is their guiding virtue. They don't just follow their desires. A major challenge lay in avoiding the tendency to identify with the negative emotions stirred up by the training. And again Lumpur is speaking. Because we are unable to distinguish between the mind and the defilements, we assume them to be one and the same thing. This undermines us. If we try to go against the defilements, then it feels as if we ourselves who are being frustrated, and so we don't do it. 
Becoming a monk is not an easy thing. It's tough. When outsiders talk about it, their words don't ring true to us. Take, for example, the common view that people become monks due to some disappointment in life. If someone like that arrives, you can tell it as soon as they walk through the gate. They're thinking that monastic life will be restful, but once they've entered the Sangha here, they find themselves under even more pressure than before, and eventually they can't take it anymore. That's how it is. I'm not just talking about other people, I've suffered a lot myself. But I had a really ardent mind. I wouldn't let myself go on suffering. I suffered intensely. I don't know where the pain all came from, yet at the same time there was also a part of me that wouldn't get along with it. Sorry, that wouldn't go along with it. In fact, sometimes thinking about the suffering and all the difficulties I was going through, I even quite enjoyed it. Longpur warned that if monks did not know how to take care of their faith, it would crumble. Unrealistic expectations were a great danger. Many young monks disrobed when they realized just how much harder it was to train their mind than they had imagined. Again, Longpur is speaking. So the real, the best foundation, is to live with patience. Patience is essential. You have to go against your habits of mind and trust in the teachings and advice of the teacher. In fact, the practice that led to the best possible outcome, the long-lasting welfare of self and others, was straightforward. It only seemed difficult because of defilement. Everything had been well set up to facilitate the training. All that needed to be done was to keep the Vinaya and monastic regulations to follow the schedule, meditate diligently, and to deal wisely with whatever arose in the mind as a result. The point to be constantly borne in mind was that the goal of practice was to abandon craving. Again, Lumpur is speaking. This craving, people don't understand it, do they? Some people think that once they've gratified the craving, it'll go away. It doesn't. Feeling sated and experiencing the cessation of craving are two different things altogether. Give a hungry dog some rice, one plate, two plates of rice, go down in a flash. But by the time it's on its fourth plate, the dog is completely stuffed. So it lays down beside the unfinished plate and guards the rice, eyes flickering. If any other dogs come to eat the food, it threatens them. Grr, grr. Dogs, humans, their instincts are pretty much the same. The abandonment of craving, the cause of suffering, would not be accomplished by force. Again, Lumpur speaking. Our capacity to abandon attachment to things depends on seeing how fitting it is to do that. When we're able to abandon something, it's because we've seen the suffering inherent in it. We're able to practice like this because we see the great value of doing so. The Buddha taught us to have mindfulness, alertness, and a constant all-round knowing of what's going on, and then to get down to it. After a period of sitting meditation is over, keep reflecting on whatever you experience. This will become a habit. It'll form a condition and a power. Increasing wholesome habits is what the Buddha called progress. The development of meditation has to be like this. Some people are disappointed by the, their results in meditation. They start thinking that they don't have the capacity to experience tranquility, and so they disrobe. But it's not so easy to get what you desire. You can't force your mind to achieve a state of lucid calm. You have to be cool and, and unhurried. 
Persevere with the practice and the teachings. Put forth effort with both body and mind. Downfall in practice comes from not being willing or daring to do it, from not following the teachings, from a lack of faith. Monks were to learn by putting forth effort and observing what happened as a result. It was not so important to be proficient in all the technical terms used to describe the process. Lumpur drew an analogy. A layperson offers you a fruit and you experience its sweet and delicious flavour even though you don't know its name. Knowing its name wouldn't make it taste any better. There's a few points in that that um, uh, are very significant. So this, uh, uh, his comment about the, in the say, taking on the novice training about uh, developing fear, a sense of fear and awe, a wise fear of wrongdoing, um, a fear of breaking the Buddha's laws. So that uh, is speaking about uh, what is called hiriyotapa or moral sensitivity. And so it's a, uh, one of the ways that I feel is most helpful to understand it. It's, it's that uh, uh, this quality of hiriyotapa, it's, uh, say, the, the natural virtue of the heart. It's the heart that, that loves the good, the heart that loves honesty, that loves harmlessness. And that uh, the, the, the kind of fear he's talking about, or awe, is that sense of protecting the heart. It's just like physical pain is, is off-putting, it's uncomfortable. That's how it works. That's how the body is protected, because uh, pain is unpleasant. So that you stop doing the thing that's causing the pain, so that you, you don't cause the body to be injured by getting too close to the fire or, or touching something that's the, a knife that's too sharp so that the, the pain it works by being uh, unpleasant that's how it functions it, so that the, the body is protected by that so uh, hiriyotapa is exactly the same way it works by being an unpleasant mental state so that uh, when you start to bend the truth for sake of a, a, a good story or trying to impress somebody or to get something that you want or that you're acting in a way that is, is hurtful or destructive or you know, dishonest, then that pain in the heart um, uh, or that sense of, of uh, recoiling, that discomfort, that's what protects the, our, our, own, our own heart, our own mind. So it works by being unpleasant. So within spiritual training, one who has got a, um, a good foundation in, in meditation, in spiritual life, they have a very strong sense of hiriyotapa. Uh, they, it's like you're, you're not numb. <laughs> you, you, you feel that. And that uh, the, uh, uh, the, the more developed, spiritually developed someone is, and the stronger the hiriyotapa uh, gets. So that rather than being more and more indifferent to um, the results of action, you get more and more sensitive. And so that... Uh, one comment, and inter- I don't know if Ajahn Jayasara quotes it in this biography, but one comment that uh, Lumpur Chara makes is uh, that you, know, you could offer me a, a million baht to kill an ant and I couldn't do it. You, know, so you, you could offer me, at that time, you know, a million baht was like a you know, huge amount of, uh, massive amount of money. He said, you could offer me a million baht to kill an ant and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly do it. I just like, uh, there's, there's no way I could, I could even conceive of that. So that uh, it's, it might seem off-putting or the idea that you want to, to develop fear or, or uh, you're developing a sense of 
of concern, but it's uh, it's rather like um, you're developing your protective mechanism. You're developing the the skills that really protect your heart. And so, someone who is at the other end of the scale, the one who is um, spiritually undeveloped, they will be instead of having no hiriyotapa or no no sense of shame, where they can quite easily just take things that they want or act in a way that's hurtful or selfish towards others and they don't care that they and you might feel oh, i wish i could just be this as indifferent as that person <laughs> i think this would do what they want and they don't feel bad about it we might feel oh i wish i was like that you know i i feel so bad if i you know i feel really you know awful or uncomfortable or upset if i i say something and i've hurt somebody's feelings because i was being you know, conceited or, or or I was being spiteful or wanted to hurt them and and they, oh I feel terrible I haven't been able to sleep for three days because I feel so bad so that um, <clears throat> on one level you might think oh, I wish I was just as insensitive as Ajahn Amaro and he could just sort of say what he likes and doesn't seem to bother him in the slightest and that uh, but that's a, a, a very foolish kind of envy <laughs> but uh, the so it's it's helpful though to to see that when that uh, quality of hiriyotapa is grasped in an unskillful way, then that becomes a guilt trip, that turns into self-hatred. So with uh, uh, the uh, spiritual training and with meditation and, and sort of monastic uh, commitment in particular, then yes, you're looking to, to raise the quality of hiriyotapa, but there's no sense of self in that. There's not, that's not a... Um, uh, based on self-view, that I'm a bad person, or I shouldn't have done that, or I'm, uh, yeah, or, or that person is much better than me. So that the the habits of uh, of self-view can take hold of that and and run with it, but that is also an unskillful aspect of hiriyotapa. So in its essence, uh, rather like physical pain, there's no sense of self intrinsically involved with physical pain. It's just a feeling. So similarly with hiriyotapa, that sense of something is said there's a painful uh, psychological impact it doesn't have to be turned into oh, i'm an awful person i'm really bad i i should be punished all that is extra that's just self-view uh, grabbing hold of that and and uh, making more confusion so it's helpful to and this is a theme that's, that's often talked about but i think it's really uh say significant in terms of of how to use that quality of, of sensitivity, uh, how to, to relate to it. And when you, if you see that the mind is very self-critical or getting lost in self-hatred or guilt trips, to, to catch that and recognize, well, yeah, that was what I said wasn't entirely true, it wasn't particularly kind, that was a very uh, thoughtless, okay, there's a bad feeling that comes from that, I don't have to turn this into me and mine. This doesn't have to be... Um, Say amplified or confused by by self view. So uh, then the um, the other uh, part of this I think is worth expanding on is uh, patient endurance. I think I was talking about that in the Dhamma talk on the observance day. So kanti paramang tapo titika, patient endurance is the supreme practice. So uh, as I was saying, that's the the kind of national anthem of the forest tradition that um, the uh, this quality of of patience you know can you endure it can you uh, can you bear with it and uh, uh, as uh, Ajahn Chah says here says 
So the real, the best foundation is to live with patience. Patience is essential. You have to go against your habits of mind and trust in the teachings and the advice of the teacher. The, uh, the very common experience, particularly with Westerners, uh, I'm sure very much with, with Thai people too, but certainly with Westerners, many Westerners come to Amravati, or <laughs> also coming to, to Wat Pananachar to, to, uh, to uh, train in the forest monasteries, and they've read a lot of books, or they listen to Dhamma talks, and they yeah, this is it, I want to be in... Uh, uh, go into the, the holy life, take on monastic training, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And uh, you have a really clear idea that this is what you want to do, and it's the only important thing, and you're very inspired. But without realizing that you created a mental image of what monastic life is like, and you haven't taken into account the people that you actually have to live with. <laughs> but the other humans in your imagination there's these other blobs on the on the cushions around you in the hallway sitting there and there's this sort of this uh, inspiring blob that sits up the front and says wise things that make you feel good and that you don't realize you created this this fantasy world and that the actuality of having to live with people who have opinions and different emotions problems uh, that uh, that they and you don't realize that you play a part in other people's worlds, that you're a character in their drama, as well as them being a character in your drama, and uh, often it's the case that the actuality of of uh, the monastery situation is very very different than than the idea. See, so, T. S. Eliot put it: between the idea and the fact, there falls the shadow. Between the idea. And the fact, there falls the shadow. The things are, are, are very different. So it's sometimes the, the case of people, would, uh, even in, in the time that I, I was at Wat Pananachat, there would be people that would come all the way from the States or from Europe and they, they arrive you know, full of zeal, determined to be a monk for the rest of their life. And then within a week, they're, they're back on the train back to Bangkok and flying back to Austria or... <laughs> Or to New York or London or wherever, and they just they didn't realize oh the, the monastery wasn't totally vegetarian or they couldn't keep their own one one famously um, was just aghast that he couldn't have uh, he didn't have a, uh, he wasn't allowed to have his own supply of chocolate. Just you know was given up everything signed you know, signed up his job and his his uh, his apartment and given up his life gone off to the forest to be a monk for the rest of his life and then literally just uh, just couldn't believe that he wasn't allowed to have his own stash of chocolate. Didn't even realize that there was no refrigeration, that his chocolate would melt anyhow. But, uh, yeah. but just somehow the mind had, had just assumed, I will, this will be something I can do. And they say, oh no, you can't have your own sugar or own chocolate or tea. You can't, you know, and all those things, they're, just, they're shared communally. And you just, maybe once or twice a week it'll be handed out, but maybe not. It's not, it's not your choice. And couldn't bear it, you know. So this, he'd taken months and months and months to wrap up his life and put it, sell his apartment, sign off his job, and say goodbye to all his friends. You know, goodbye forever. I'm off to the forest to, you know, seek enlightenment. And then, no chocolate. <laughs> Back on the plane, you know, to Vienna, I think it was. No, no offense to the Austrians. But I think he went back to Vienna. So. So um, that uh, patient endurance, and particularly 
when people ask, um, when they come uh, to come on a retreat or they come to stay here, often they'll come up and and say, okay, have you got any advice for me? And uh, almost invariably I say, well, just park all of your expectations, whatever, whatever you think it's going to be like, forget that. And just bring your attention to the, the felt experience of the present moment. Just that, that, that because your expectations, your plans, your ideas, it's, it's definitely going to be different uh, to that. And so that um, that laying aside of your, your, um, your, say, expectations, your presumptions, and being open to the present, and particularly that sense of, of uh, patience, because uh, as Ajahn Shah says here, this craving, people don't understand it, do they? Some people think that once they've gratified the craving, it'll go away, so like, like the dog having three or four plates of food. You know, okay, I've, I'm absolutely full now, My, I've ended craving, because <laughs> you're completely stuffed. But as he points out, you know, that a stuffed dog will still sleep next to a plate, like making sure it'll, it'll have what it wants when it wakes up. <laughs> so that letting go of craving, as a cessation of craving and, and feeling sated, like being full up, having gratified the craving and having let go of craving, are two completely different things. And so the, the structure of a forest monastery life, it's deliberately uh, designed to meet craving that's that's the point of it it's, it's as simple as possible celibacy uh, simplicity m uh, lack of entertainment a minimum of distractions i mean here the it's a a lot less plain than it, it uh, was in the forest monasteries back in the, the old days with no electricity no uh, you know uh, very few allowables or, or uh, sweet drinks and such like on here we have a library of 20,000 books to roam around in such like but uh, the the structure of monastic training it uh, and forest monastery life is deliberately to be as boring as possible so that, that you're deliberately limiting the outlets of of distraction uh, so that with with uh, food with sleep with clothing with relationships yeah it's it's minimizing it keeping everything as simple as possible as plain as possible and so that you're consciously frustrating all of the habits of craving so that the, the the ways that you feed the mind habitually you you satiate those habits that you you are stopping that that feeling so that you can meet the habits that are there it's like if uh, you don't know what you're addicted to until you stop the supply of your drugs of choice whether it's sugar or uh, uh, friendly company or, or uh, traveling or or, or sweet things to eat or, or drink or things to look at or things to listen to that you don't realize how much you're say, addicted to listening to music until the, the music stops <laughs> or the uh, to snacking you know the uh, to always having something to, to nibble on or to, to eat until the so you know the kitchen's out of bounds no you can't go to the fridge <laughs> or, <clears throat> having your uh, granola bars taken off you at the beginning of the retreat but 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 you know so that that is quite deliberate so that we can meet the habits of craving that, that are there not out of being sadistic but so that we can uh, free the heart from those dependencies so it's creating uh, an environment where we can develop 
that spiritual strength and adaptability. We, uh, the English word to be robust means to be able to be uh, in a big variety of different situations, whether it's hot or cold, or, or light or dark, or busy or quiet, that you are adaptable as a, a robustness and adaptability that uh, we can learn from. So then the patience comes from the readiness to meet that that hungering, that, that craving, and to not wobble, or to not you know, run away. So that the that patience uh, is like a readiness to meet that and to 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 know that that craving feeling so that and that's what helps the craving to come to an end so you're not uh, feeding the craving but you're you're meeting it you're knowing it and letting it letting it end on its own and so that the uh, forest monastery training is very specifically crafted to be meeting that craving that's that's, that's how it works and so that that is a state of suffering. That's the, the, it's like a deliberate um, hungering. And so it is a kind of suffering, but the, uh, it doesn't mention it here, but one of the most common phrases, along with patient endurance, <laughs> is uh, that the, the, the basic method of the Dutanga life and, and forest monastery training is it's called the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So that yes, it's it's difficult, it's challenging, but it's a challenge that helps the mind to arrive at the the end of dukkha. So it's rather like if you're going on a long a long hike. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. You've got to keep moving your legs. You've got to deal with feelings of, of aching and being hot or being uh, being hungry or being uh, tired. But you, you know, that you're, you're working with those uncomfortable feelings so that. You can go for the, the full length of the walk. You can visit the, the other parts of the, the landscape. So that, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a work there, and there's an effort that's being made. There's, a, there's difficulty that's being, say, met. But it has this, this higher purpose, just like with going for a hike or, or athletic training, that, yeah, it's, it's challenging, but then that challenge brings many, many benefits with it. So... Like with getting fit or going for a walk, and you either can see different places or you develop greater physical strength. But this is a, a kind of um, spiritual training that, t uh, say, brings that um, strength to the heart. And, and it's interesting that the the word ascetic in English, or ascetic practice, it comes from the Greek word askesis, which is uh, used for uh, like uh, athletic training. That's like a, a, a someone who's training for sports. That's the the training that the, you would do as an athlete. Ne is necessarily it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. But that's how you arrive at excellence in your in your sport and being able to run or jump or throw things or whatever. The strength that that ascesis is needed to to develop the strength. So that in the same way, the ascetic practice or the, the spiritual training of the and the forest life. That's uh, that ascesis or that uh, that form of, of of mental training, mental fitness, uh, if you like, that brings uh, the spiritual strength of uh, of adaptability and a and a heart that can live in uh, at ease in all situations and is not dependent on having things in a particular way to make you feel good. Any questions, thoughts? Everyone's very quiet today. I'm surprised that, um, I don't know, maybe you mentioned it, but the 
He doesn't mention that particular, not that, that, not that phraseology here. <laughs> the Lokapala, yeah. The uh, also the 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 devas the uh, the main entrance to the temple the one with the the blue and the pink uh, the devas they they represent Hiri and Otapa. so it's it's unusual um, for the Hiri and Otapa to be represented in sort of a personalized form but sometimes they they are and so it was a very deliberate choice of Lumpur Sumato to have those so that the those two so if you like temple guardians by either side of the door, they represent Hiri and Otapa. It's a moral sensitivity. That's the, as Ajahn Sundra was saying, they're the uh, the uh, the guardian, the the guardians of the world, or the bright the bright protectors is another way that they're described. They're they're, they're brightnesses of the heart. They're, they're radiant qualities. Okay.